So it's been a pretty crazy week for our Prime Minister, let's be honest, Michelle. You've got to admit. I love how you always start in on the PM. Oh, look, look, look. You know, I, I, I'm not backwards and coming forwards about how I feel about him. I mean, he insulted the French. He revealed a text of a French president, which is, look, to be honest, is not a good look. And To be it, honest, it's pretty easy to insult the French, so let's uh, not go there. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> right, yeah, let's be, let's be honest, they're, they're pretty sensitive. I mean, being very French, they, they are. But the thing is, um, what he did was pretty stupid and yeah. also is going to, it, it does have intelligence ramifications, but also it's pretty funny when you tick off a country that has been so terrible in its own international relations with people in the South Pacific and I really want to talk about one tiny little incident that people may have never heard of uh, involving uh, two limpet mines, several spies and a boat in Auckland Harbour. Let's talk about the Rainbow Warrior. Ooh. You're listening to I Spied, the escargot of Australian intelligence. Waiter! Waiter, I want to return this escargot. It's got snails in it. Uh, uh, uh it is snails. What? Yeah. Hello and welcome to I Spied. My name's Michelle Stevenson. I'm here with David Callan and we're going to take a closer look at the Rainbow Warrior, which is something I haven't spoken about in years. Gosh, I feel yeah. like it's long and forgotten its history, but let's let's dredge it back up. Yeah, let's well, pull the that thing boat is, back it is, it, Well, also, it reads like one classic James Bond spy film. Yes. It really does. This thing is all over the shop. Basically, uh, on the 10th of July, 1985, an explosion ripped into the side of the Rainbow Warrior which was a refitted trawler that Greenpeace used uh, to float the seas and fight whaling and demonstrate against nuclear testing and all that sort of stuff. An explosion ripped through it and then at about 23.38, so about Mm. 20 to midnight, this bomb went off on the boat. Now, the thing was there were about 14 people on the boat. A lot of them were actually up in the galley drinking beer. And when the bomb went off, they all got off the boat really quickly and then went, hang on. Everything's settled, good. There's a bit of water coming on board. Let's go back in and see what's going on. Right. And they went back on board the boat. At 23.45, so quarter to midnight, a second bomb went off. And within four minutes, that boat was at the bottom of Auckland Harbour. Now, the first bomb basically was aimed to get the crew off the boat. The thing is, what they weren't expecting, the bombers, weren't expecting that these people would then go back onto the boat to see what had Mm. gone wrong. And in particular, one man, uh, Ferdinand Pereira, who was a Portuguese-born Dutch photographer, went down into his cabin to get his camera. While he was there, the second bomb went off. The boat flooded and he was killed. Everybody else was either either got off as the boat was flooding or was blown off the boat in the second explosion. Right. When they finally recovered Pereira's body, he was not killed by the explosion. He drowned. But the whole thing was the boat went to the bottom of the harbour in four minutes. So from first right. explosion to last explosion was about 10 minutes. Boom. This boat's gone to the bottom of the harbour. Now, the whole thing was, it turns out that a lot of people were worried about how this happened and why it happened and what was going on. Now, at the time, the French, uh, the very, very passive and very non-aggressive French, were exploding nuclear bombs off Muro Ratol. They were actually geared up to have an atmospheric atomic test, which was a pretty 
pretty uncool thing to do when you consider that it's basically flooded most of the South Pacific with strontium-90. Now, what they did was they knew that protesters were going to show up. Now, normally they could just get rid of protesters by sticking a French Corvette into the around the island and scaring off the boats. But yep. The Rainbow Warrior wasn't just a, a tiny little boat. It was a bloody big trawler. And, you know, a French Corvette's probably not going to scare it off as much as it would scare off a yacht. So the French decided that probably a good thing to do is get it out of the way before it leaves harbour. So they bombed it. Now, at first, when it happened, the French turned around to the New Zealanders and went, oh, my, quel, quel surprise, this is terrible. <laughs> oh, oh, my God, who would do such a thing? Mon Dieu, merde, all that sort of stuff. Yep, um, yep, until yep. about a week later, it found, they found out that, well, actually it was the French, and the French had to put their hand up and go, uh, okay, you caught us, it was us. Now, the story of the actual operation is amazing. Okay. The, the operation was run by the Direction Générale de la Sécurité Extérieure, which is their version of ASIS, all right? their external security organisation. They sent, uh, very early on, about two months prior to the actual bombing, they sent uh, uh, an intelligence officer, a woman by the name of uh, Christine Cabon, who posed as Frédéric who a an environmental activist, and she got a job in the Greenpeace office. So she was monitoring all of their communications and was also had access to the Rainbow Warrior. She was working for Greenpeace in New Zealand. Now, uh, about a week before that, two Swiss newlywed tourists arrived on the scene and did a tour of the boat. They were invited on to have a look at the boat. They were, of course, known as uh, their real names were Dominique Prieur and Alain Maffat. Yes, Maffat. They posed as uh, tourists to go on the boat and have a look. Once they had a look at the boat and worked out where they could put something to explode, mm. they took delivery of two limpet mines from a, a yacht, the Ouvier, that smuggled the two limpet mines in. It had three intelligence officers on that carrying these mines. They handed the mines to Prieur and Maffat. I love that name. Um, yep. And they handed those mines over to two. Navy French Navy divers, or as I like to call them, frogmen. Yes, I went there. <laughs> God. Froggy frogmen. So two yep. frogmen then swam up to the boat, attached these limpet mines, and boom, they detonated the mines. Now, they would think that game over, everyone's going to leave town. Well, funnily enough, the three guys on the yacht, they left yep. on the yacht. Then uh, Christine Cabon, she left. She went to Israel of all places. She went. She was actually a Middle Eastern specialist, so she ran off to Israel. The divers took a ferry down to the South Island and went skiing at Mount Hutt for 10 days before mm -hmm. they flew out. But the young newlywed couple, young uh, Pierre and Mafart, they were caught by the New Zealand police after a neighbourhood watch person said, oh, they look a bit sus, don't they, Brew? Right? So they were carrying Swiss passports. They weren't their Swiss passports. And at mm -hmm. that point, the French had to turn around and go, okay, we did it. Uh, sorry about that. But, you know, we don't want that bird going out to Murrah. Now, you <laughs> would think that that's pretty much it. Right, that's yes. a, that's pretty much the story. It Case all closed. happened. They got arrested. All this sort of thing happened. Now, up until they actually pled guilty, until uh, Prior and Mafat, Mafat, great name, uh, until they <laughs> both got, um, they pled guilty, the French denied yeah. it. Now, what happened after that was the two were 
charged, prosecuted, found guilty, and sentenced to 10 years in prison for manslaughter and criminal damage. Now, first thing, uh, of course, New Zealand's first went, well, this is terrorism, isn't it? And then they basically turned, when they found out it was the French, they went, this is literally an attack from an ally on our sovereign mm. soil. Right yep. now, now, technically... The boat wasn't theirs. It belongs to Greenpeace, but it was registered to Holland. It's a Dutch boat, but it was in their territorial waters. It was an attack on their on their country. So essentially, the French turned around when they sent, when, after the New Zealanders sentenced uh, the two spies to ten years. They turned around and went, "We'd like them back, please." And the New Zealanders went, mm, "We're not going to give them back." And the French then turned around and said, well, all of that trade that you're trying to do with the European Union, uh, with the EC, and particularly the UK, we're going to block all of it. And now the big things that New Zealand were exporting at that time were butter and lamb. Go figure. They were exporting mm. sheep. Uh, and they were going to, the French were going to block it, going to stop it all. So the New Zealanders turned around to the UN. The UN turned around and went, okay, guys, France... You know, you you blew it. You made a huge mistake here. You're going to pay reparations to New Zealand, to Greenpeace, and to Ferreira or Pereira, um, the Portuguese photographer. You're going to pay reparations to them, and also you're going to release the two spies into the custody of the French, who will then lock them on an island in the South Pacific. Oh my God! What a horrible punishment! They were locked onto a, into a military base in isolation on the island of How. And they were to spend three years there. They were not to have any contact with anybody other than their families and officials. Mm -hmm. So the three years, well, it didn't actually become three years. Mafat was released after 18 months because he was ill and went straight back to France and was promoted to colonel. And then- oh, Great. Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, Prieur, Prieur fell pregnant because they sent her husband over to get for a conjugal visit. She fell pregnant and they moved her back to France within two years and she was promoted. What a great way to get out of prison. A great way to get out of prison is go and spend 18 months on a tropical island and then go home <laughs> to a raise, right? Now, yes. So this may sound a little cynical, all right? And Australia did have a role in this. Australia was kind of involved. The boat, the Uvier, the yacht that smuggled the mines, yeah. what happened with that was it actually got stopped at Norfolk Island. They pulled up at Norfolk Island to refit and, you know, resupply themselves. And while they were there, they were arrested by the Australian police, but they couldn't be held because there was no forensic evidence linking them to the crime at the time. So while Australian police were waiting for them to, you know, waiting for the forensic evidence to come from New Zealand, yep. the, a French submarine surfaced, took them on board and then sunk the yacht. <laughs> right? So it was okay. like, this is total James Bond gear. Now, this is also not the first time the French have done this sort of thing. They've got a bit of a reputation for dealing quite heavy-handedly with, say, independence activists in the South Pacific, in French yeah. Polynesia and Vanuatu. So the whole thing about this story is it was a massive point of heavy-handedness from the French. But two years after the whole thing came out, it really blew up in a very big and bad way for the French because it became quite obvious by documents that were released by the Times in London and Le Monde in Paris that French President Francois Mitterrand actually gave it the green light. It went right to the very top of French politics. Right. Which, again, it comes down to that whole thing. It's a French... The French have this real sort of idea of, and it comes from Charles de Gaulle, of 
uh, Gallic grandeur. They still want to be regarded as a major power, and the only place they can really be a major power at the moment anymore, though, uh, though in Europe they were about to take over the European Union, is in South in the South Pacific because there's not a lot there, and they own quite a big chunk of it. But the practical upshot of it is is that little incident, and by no means it was a a piece of state sponsored terrorism. That little incident literally reshaped. French nuclear policy and yep. South Pacific pol- uh, political policy as well. New Zealand detached itself entirely from the nuclear movement. It's now a nuclear-free zone. If you've got nukes on your ship, you are not allowed in. It also, they detached themselves from the United States as well, simply for the same reason. The New Zealanders turned around to the US and went, you are literally letting these guys detonate stuff on our back door and doing nothing about it. And you were doing it yourselves before. Yeah, but the big thing was the the French were the only people that were doing atmospheric testing. No one else was. They were burying it and blowing it up. And the last test finally happened with Jacques Chirac in 1995 or 96, again at Muroa, and since then, nothing. Right? It's so but, crazy that they thought that they could just do this. But that's the whole thing. And it comes down – it also comes down to the uh, what's going on with the French right now and Australia right now is they do not regard Australia – well, they didn't regard New Zealand at the time – as anyone to worry about. It was just a tiny little island in the South Pacific, mm, really absolutely. nothing to worry about. So we can blow up a boat there and it'll be fine. And if it all goes belly up, which it did massively, well, mm. no one's going to care because it's just New Zealand. Well, funnily enough – Everyone cared, and New Zealand sort of have walked away from it. Like now, interestingly enough, one of the bombers came out – actually, one of the miners, one of the, the, the guys who set the mine, one of the divers actually made a statement to New Zealand apologising for his role in it. And as this was a thing going through the whole thing, particularly when the French said, we want our, our two spies back, they mm. were only following orders. But as the UN said when they said release those uh, – two spies back into French custody, they were following orders. So in effect, they were military combatants. They weren't terrorists. or uh, So essentially, the whole idea was they were following orders. And this is what the bomber said. I was following orders and I you know, want to apologise to the Pereira family. I want to apologise to Greenpeace. I want to apologise to New Zealand. Funnily enough, Greenpeace have been trying to get Christine Cabon, the woman who um, snuck off to Israel. And in fact, New Zealand did approach Israel straight after the case and went, we'd like her back, please. And she yep. disappeared from Israel and was never seen again. Right, mm. So she's gone back into the intelligence system, probably. But essentially, um, Greenpeace kept trying to prosecute that, kept trying to find her, kept trying to have her extradited to New Zealand. And it was the New Zealand government, I think in 2015, who finally turned around and went, we regard the case as closed. We don't want to do anything with this anymore. We don't want to know about it anymore. Everything, you know, deal is done. It's all sealed, signed, yep. delivered. So that was the whole thing. The only other person, like the head of the DGSE who organised it, who presented the plan to Mitterrand, he was fired. Love his name, Pierre Lacoste. Could you be more French than that? Pierre no. Lacoste. But yep. the commander of the mission was a guy by the name of uh, Louis-Pierre Delay. Now, Louis-Pierre Delay pops up again around about 2000, in the early 2000s when the um, New Zealanders were going to buy some weapons from a Belgian arms manufacturer, FN, uh, FN Hurst. They were buying these weapons until I think it was either Greenpeace or an opposition member of parliament turned around and went, so you're going to buy weapons from the people who blew up 
the Rainbow Warrior. Now, when the French, the New Zealand government turned around and went, no, 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 they're a Belgian company, they're not French. They went, yeah, but the head of that company is Commander Louis-Pierre Delay, the guy who organised the bombing. So that actually right. killed that contract. So it had this knock-on effect right through the South Pacific, but particularly in New Zealand politics and the way it does its business. Since it's detached itself from the United States, it's still a part of ANZUS, the ANZUS Treaty, but it has detached itself from it, and that would also explain why New Zealand is so much, uh, particularly now, so much happier dealing with someone like China because at least China doesn't come in and blow up their boats. And, yeah, you kind of get what you get with China. Mm. And also, like the French have also been getting involved in the China thing by showing up in the South Pacific with their one aircraft carrier to go, by the way, we're allowed to sail through the South China Sea whenever we want to, to which the Chinese probably went, oh, check it out, the French, cool. So this was the whole, like that was the rainbow warrior. The French have a reputation for getting involved in these sort of things. There was another case called the Sherberg Boats, I think it was, where the French were commissioned to create five ships for another country. I can't remember which the country was. Mm -hmm. I only skirted on this. But essentially, then they reneged on the contract. They built the five boats and went, these boats are very nice. We should keep them. And they did. So that country actually basically broke into France and stole them. So the the French have got this way of sort of getting what they want. Yeah. Um, Very much like a petrol – they're very petulant, the French, I think. But at the moment – so when people go – and this has been an argument that's popped up a lot with the whole Scott Morrison, G20, Virago. What's come up a lot of that – and as a lot of people say is, oh, the French, mate, you know, we protected France during World War I and World War II. So did a lot of countries and – that was also in our self-interest. So to bring that up is kind of stupid. Yeah. But if you did want to say, look, you know, double dealing with the French, let's look at the Rainbow Warrior, let's look at the boats of Sherberg. They're probably better cases if you wanted to bring it up. But essentially... Yeah, but, uh, I mean, they, I mean, they, they happened a while back though. Yes, but this is, what, this is a great thing. Again, this is a great example of how an intelligence operation or an intelligence failure. Because the thing is, if those simply, if the newlyweds had left the country literally as the bombs went off, it probably would have been a lot, lot harder for the New Zealanders to pin it onto the French, and the French could, would have had plausible denial. They lost yeah. that option. They lost plausible denial, and as soon as you lose plausible denial and your intelligence community or your intelligence organization is so badly exposed because it was it was a dreadful mistake right now the mistake that we've got on our side at the moment is we've just got a a prime minister that's um loose with the truth and loose with his lips which just makes us look makes the the country look stupid because we put him into that position what the french did was a an attack. It was a military operation because with the DGSE, they generally, with their field officers, they use a lot of military personnel as field officers. They're actually regarded as a paramilitary organisation. Now, funnily enough, I just got a hold of a book. Our producers at Dimitina handed me this book from uh, an SAS warrant officer who's written a fictional book about an SAS guy working for ACES. Now, I'm currently reading this book and it's it's an absolute potboiler boy's own adventure of spies and thrillers and soldiers jumping out of airplanes. But it also reflects on the fact that intelligence often will use military personnel to do that kind of dirty work. Hence, yep. we have the James Bond milieu. So bottom line, getting to the, the very nut of the issue is 
France can moan as much as they want about the fact that we didn't buy their submarines. And they want us to buy their submarines because it gives them more power in the Pacific, which they desperately want. But also... They're really, they're no angels. They can't point the finger too hard because they've been doing just as much bad stuff as everybody else. Yeah, look, I don't think it was even so much about the submarine deal as as opposed to some bad dealings on our government's behalf. Well, that's bottom line. That and again, it comes down to that idea of you've got to be hard and fast with the truth in in these situations. And the problem we've had with uh, Scott Morrison is he didn't do it correctly. He then, no. interestingly, like he when he says, "Oh no, no, no," I was giving him hints at Versailles. Um, well, you know, hints are hints, mate. That's not him. You going look. This could be a problem. We need to talk about it. The other thing was when he said, no, 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 I let him know six months ago. Um, and the Americans went, "We th- when Biden went, oh, sorry, I, I thought that the Australians had dealt with that. Yes, he then turned around and released the 15-page AUKUS timeline that said, don't tell him until the very end. So he really revealed his own lie in trying to say that I wasn't lying. So there's that whole thing. And the bottom line is for Australia, I think the big problem for us is – Scott Morrison's going to find it very difficult to do personal dealings with other world leaders. Yes. And our intelligence services could find themselves facing a little bit, a little bit of an intelligence drought where everyone goes, well, don't tell the Australians because God knows what's going to come out in a text message or at a press conference. Yeah, I mean, heads of state should never be leaking text messages, regardless whether you're trying to prove a point or political point scoring. It is just bad form from the perspective of foreign policy and having to deal with um, other countries. Exactly. And also the the fact that the text that was released was from Macron was – is there a problem here? Right, that yeah. was his big thing. Was you know, he was literally like going, uh, "Hang on a minute, is this good news or bad news?" Because what the hell is going on? And then it all blows up because it's then revealed in a press conference at seven o'clock in the morning Australian time. So, look, bottom lining this: countries get shit wrong all the time. Unfortunately, with Australia, it was exceptionally public. But the French really are in no position to stand there and go, "We are clean and." Good people, we have never done anything wrong. Well, of course, we we know that they have. But I think what – so in terms of like the intelligence, how difficult is it going to be for Australians moving forward now that the French are kind of a little pissed at us? Do they have their fingers in a lot of worldwide security pies? Well, um, the biggest problem we've got right now is we're trying to get a free trade agreement with the European yes. community and France is about to take over as the head of the European community. That, yeah, that, that could doesn't be, bode well. Yeah, and uh, I think it was Dan he- Dan Tian came out today and said, I'm going to do my best to uh, to fix this, mm. which made pretty much everyone go run, you know, run Francois or Emmanuel run, simply because um, Dan Tian is not the person to do this. The person who should be doing it is the foreign minister, and I believe we still have one. I haven't seen it for a while. Intelligence-wise, there is the, the point that it could be difficult, but interestingly enough, because this has mainly been an issue of the personal, not the professional, so it's it's personal dealings between the prime minister, between world leaders, I think Mm -hmm. what it will be is world leaders will be very, very hesitant to have any one-on-one dealings with someone like Scott Morrison in the short term, simply because we can't trust this guy. But I think intelligence-wise, most countries will be cagey, but still cooperative with Australia. We've got a really, really solid intelligence service. And I mean, we've revealed some of the massive problems we've had through the 60s, 70s, 50s, 60s, 70s and 80s. 
since about the the aughts, since 2000 and onward, we've really sort of compartmentalized and professionalized our intelligence to a greater degree. Yep. So I think um, what will happen is most intelligence services that we do deal with will probably turn around to our intelligence services and go, geez, you know, your prime minister, don't give him a phone next time. And I think ultimately it's it's a non-issue for intelligence. It's a major issue for um, diplomacy and for politics. That is the That's the takeaway you can have from this. Great. So chalk one up for Australia looking pretty shit on the world stage. Yeah, you know, we're wiping the poo off our shoes right now because we <laughs> waded in it up to our knees. But yeah. ultimately, look, I think it comes down to the fact that, you know, every country gets a dud of a leader every now and then. And I think it's our turn at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I feel like we've had a few turns, but anyway. <laughs> yeah, well, tr- yeah, actually. Yeah, it's, yeah, actually, I'm, lately, I'm, we've I'm been yet to see one. And yet to see us get it right. Okay, well then that's the French done and dusted for us this Pretty app. much. Uh, look, put it this way, I don't think we'll be getting any photos of Scotty making a croissant curry at any time soon. And, um, you know, Emmanuel quite likes the Australian people, but I don't think he'll be inviting um, Scott over for a glass of vino anytime soon. No, I don't think so either. 